Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailor. I just got back from this three-hour tour, OG. Got on a little boat, Lake Superior, three hours over to Isle Royal National Park. And you know what was great? It takes three hours to get there? Three hours. Did you row? I did. My arms are so tired. You can see it right over there. Take that long. Yeah. No, it's a three-hour three hour tour. But I'll tell you, you know what was awesome? We go all the way up to the Canadian border, and not once were we attacked by Canadians. And you know why? Why is that? The brave men and women in our armed forces keeping us safe from those crazy Canadians. Yeah. We could, in, Never know. in safety, get lost on this nearly remote island called Isle Royal National Park. So on behalf of my family, who made it there safely and back, and the men and women here in the basement, and the men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union, a big shout out to our men and women of our armed forces doing a heck of a job. Let's go stack some Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it was Jim Morrison who said, at the point of death, the pain is over. And while that may be true for you, if you don't have a will, the pain's just begun for your family. So what exactly do you need and what's a waste? Today, to help us put together a great plan, we welcome, from the award-winning Women Who Money blog and co-author of the new Estate Planning 101 book, it's Amy Blacklock. Plus, rebalancing? You've heard the term. Today, we'll share how to do it right. And later, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener, and I'll share some of my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who better have me listed as their primary beneficiary. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Everybody, welcome to the You Get What You Wish For podcast. So, might want to think about that first. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, I've Joe Bunny on Twitter. Across the card table from me to kick off the last week of August, it's Mr. OG. What's up? Can you believe summer coming to an end, my friend? Except in Texas, where it's always summer. We, so. we still got another six weeks. Poxitani Roadrunner shows up out of a hole. Where it's still 104. The Cisco Roadrunner. But here in Texas, Bucky... Steps out of the gas comes, station. <laughs> steps out, sees sweat drip immediately, <laughs> and that's a signal that there's still 12 weeks left of summer in Texas. Still 12, <laughs> 12 weeks of summer. And it does then switch. There's almost no fall, right? It switches right to winter, which means it's going to be 70 every once in a while, which totally... Oh, it's freezing. Somebody's okay. It's the 50 days that really bother me. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we got a great show today for our last week of summer. We are, number one, going to talk about what happens. We talk about summer dying. What happens when you die? Make sure that your estate plan is in order. Amy Blacklock is here. She and her writing partner, Vicki, have written a book called Estate Planning 101. Very esoteric title. Not sure what that's about. I think we'll figure it out. 
Hopefully we'll talk to her. Maybe she can parse the subtext there. We also have a great headline, fantastic TikTok minute today. Oh, gee, can't wait to surprise you with that one. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. So let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our headline today comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. Because I've been on vacation, I love the fact that we kind of get to ignore what's going on in the world and talk about something that is evergreen, important, and I think a lot of people get wrong. Ann Turgeson here writes, portfolio rebalancing is a good retirement habit. The interesting twist here, OG, is that she says that while rebalancing your portfolio is a good idea for all of us, it is especially good for people in retirement because of the fact that you want less portfolio drift during retirement than you might want if you are still working. Portfolio drift when you're working can work in your favor, but you can't afford the volatility later on. So I think we should start with the 101 here. What is portfolio rebalancing for people that heard that term maybe? Not really sure what we're talking about. Very simply, it's just taking a look at what your money looks like right now and contrasting it against what you want it to look like. And rebalancing is the act of putting it back. So let's say that you've got um, four investments. You want 25% in each one of them. You look today and one has 30% and one has 20% and the other have 25 Well, it's a little out of whack. So what you want to do is sell part of the 30 to buy part of the 20 to get back to 25, 25, 25, 25 in your portfolio. And I think there's a key there that you're talking about, which is getting the portfolio back to what you want it to look like. I know there's people walking down the street with their headphones in going, yeah, but OG, what do I want my portfolio to look like? Therein is the $40,000 question. <laughs> there, there it is. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be determined by your timeframes and goals and your tolerance for the ups and downs of the 
the stock market and and all that sort of fun stuff. But what we're talking about is your, you know, your investment policy statement, your asset allocation. And that's probably the first part of this, which is what do you want your investment policy statement to say, which is based on how you feel about money and the goals that you have. And that's going to inform how you allocate your portfolio. So once you know what your money has to do to reach your goals, then you can select the right collection of stuff, big companies or international companies or small companies or whatever, to get the right mix to generate the return that you need to reach your goals. And then rebalancing is kind of the maintenance of that moving forward. I'm curious, what does she say is the frequency of rebalancing? Well, it's interesting you say that because she actually says that rebalancing is something that only half of retail investors bother with, according to Vanguard. But she also says, OG, that people that don't rebalance are often rewarded because as stocks rise, they end up with higher allocations to an asset class that in the long runs had higher returns, right? So small company stocks over long periods of time have much better returns and you end up with more and more small company stock in your portfolio because small caps rock if you've got a 20, 25 year time frame. Right. So for people that are early on, letting your portfolio drift and letting momentum run, which momentum is a real thing in, in the stock market. We've seen the U.S. stock market over the past 10 years has had a lot of momentum. The international markets, maybe not so much. Different kind of momentum. Yeah, that's right. But when you, when you look at momentum, when you transition out to become a retiree, she quotes our friend Christine Benz over at Morningstar, who says the utility of rebalancing where they say it might not be as important before you retire, Christine says the utility of rebalancing shoots up in retirement because of the fact that risk management becomes so much more important. And I think for somebody like you who advocates a lot of stock in your portfolio, I would have to guess that you get a little tighter on your rebalancing schedule once somebody hits retirement. Well, again, we look at it more from the perspective of each individual portfolio because there's no benefit to rebalancing if there's no point in rebalancing. The common wisdom is pick a time, you know, do do it on your birthday, do it on your anniversary, do it once a month, once a quarter. The reality is, is that you really only have to rebalance when things are broken. Over the last year is a great example. The stock market's gone up a whole bunch and just about everything has gone up. So there's not that big disparity. What you're looking for is the disparity in the portfolio. And if it's only just a few percentage points, I just don't see that the need is there. The last study that I saw done on this suggested that there wasn't any benefit to rebalancing more frequently than once a year. If you rebalance monthly or quarterly, there was no significant benefit to to doing that versus annually. I think this is a little dated because there were some costs involved in that, in that study. And there's not as much uh, cost and friction in rebalancing as there once used to be. So, uh, so that, that, that may be a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, old study, but nevertheless, if you're off by a few percentage points, I don't see that it makes sense. I would say 10 or 20, then it does. Pivoting away from this piece to another that uh, Michael Kitzes wrote, he talks about two different ways that people rebalance. The first way, OG, to your point, is 
time horizon rebalancing, meaning as I get closer, I rebalance more, right? Christine Ben's even talking about how you might tighten and rebalance once, maybe twice a year. He also references the studies that you're referring to saying that rebalancing more often doesn't add to your return, but it also, frankly, if you've got transaction cost, if you've transaction cost, it increases the cost, which can outweigh some of these short-term rebalancing positives. One of the cost, he says offhand, is you might pay short-term capital gains tax. So tax and friction, if, if you're outside of an IRA, might end up being a problem. But he starts advocating kind of what I think where you're going here, which is he advocates tolerance band rebalancing. Don't rebalance anything until you get to whatever your magic number is. Yeah. You know, you said 10 or 20, get to maybe 10% off and then tweak it. So just let it go. Forget about twice a year, once a year. Let your portfolio run until something gets truly out of whack. Well, I think that's a more sound way to do it, I guess. And to be clear, when you think about the percentages, we don't necessarily mean, let's say that you've got a, back to our example before, where you've got 25% in four different things. I don't mean 15 to 35 when I say 10%. I mean 10% of that weighting. So 10% of 25% is 2.5%, right? So I want to go plus or minus 27.5 to 22.5. That's kind of my range. Or if I was going to go 20%, I would use five. But I think that allows for the normal ups and downs of your portfolio without having too much of the time kind of getting your fingers involved in it. And we use 20 just because that's what we use. Yeah. I think if you're doing it a little bit more frequently than that, you're trying to have some busy work. I think you got your fingers in it too much. Well, historically, Vanguard showed that you you get nowhere. Uh, they did a study that a portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and went all the way back to 1926. If you rebalance annually, your return, 8.6%. If you rebalance every month, your return, wait for it, 8.5%, a little worse. Yeah. Yeah, not great. So to your point, lots and lots and lots of busy work. By the way, if, if you want to know where to start looking at your portfolio and how to construct that, we'll have... Brooke from our team will have links in our guide to the show. She'll also have these pieces. We'll also have the pieces on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. But we try to keep the show notes succinct for people that just want the links we talk about on the show. If you want the extra, sign up for the stacker, our free guide to the show every Monday, Wednesday, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Guess what time it is, OG? Time for our TikTok Minute. This is where we profile something good that we found on TikTok. And actually, this one came from Twitter. TikTok Investor actually found that and have found several of these. Sometimes stackers find them. Sometimes they're fantastic. Sometimes they're not. We're going to spin the wheel of randomness and see if this one is a great take or not. What are you going for, OG? Is this going to be brilliance like we had last time? Brilliance. Going with brilliance? I'm going with brilliance. All right, here we go. Let's listen. This is uh, some commentary about uh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk has over $195 billion. This is that money in comparison. Now, what annoys me is that Earth has the population of 7 billion people. If Elon Musk was to give everyone $1 billion, he would still have $145 billion left. And he refuses to do so. And this is capitalist greed. 
I'm I'm sorry, it's Elon Musk, not Elon Musk. And I don't know if you caught that math, but if he he has $195 billion, and according to her, I have not done this valuable research, but she says Earth has a population of 7 billion people. Closer to 8 billion, but all right. Then he'd still have $145 billion left. Yeah. In her world. (laughs) It just makes... Makes my head hurt. So, Mr. Moosk, I think the takeaway... Future of the world. I think think the takeaway is, Mr. Moosk, start sharing your money. Billion for you, OG, a billion for... What's a billion among friends? It would be something, wouldn't it? Of course, milk would be $42 million a gallon at that point, but (laughs) whatever. No, economics does not matter here. Who cares? Uh, lesson here is uh, learn some math. Do not miss fourth grade math. Do, do not. Critical that you do it. How many How many likes did this have, by the way? Views. So at least some number of people that are like, uh, I want to check this. 2,228. <sighs> Fun times. If you've got a TikTok video you'd like to share with us, send them to me, Joe, at stackybenjamins.com. And... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, loving the brilliance being shared on social media. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes there is some fantastic brilliance. Other times it's just fun to let out a big sigh. OG. Yep. Amy Blacklock is part of an award-winning team of writers at the blog called Women Who Money. She and her friend Vicky dove into estate planning. OG, we're going to talk to her about that. Coming up here next, but Doug, you look concerned. What's going on with you, Mr. Doug? Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we haven't heard from Amy Blacklock quite yet, but it's got me thinking. I haven't done my own estate plan, and I'm realizing if I don't get on that, it's going to be World War III down here in the basement when they realize all of my stuff is up for grabs. So I've decided to be considerate and just divvy it out ahead of time. Before I break the silence and tell you what I've got to find a new future owner for, let's get to today's trivia question. On this date in history, the first hashtag was used. Hashtag that's lit. No, 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 no that, that, that's not the first hashtag that was ever used. That's just how the kids these days say everything's really cool. They'll just be like, oh, instead of that, like, that's really cool, man. They'll be like, hashtag that's lit. So that's, that's what I was. Anyway, the question is, what year was the real first hashtag used? Hint, it was first used in the age of social media. I'll be back with your answer faster than you can disappoint family members with the results of your will. When you become a member of Navy Federal Credit Union, life gets better. It was such a struggle for me setting up my accounts initially at a financial institution figuring out how to do all the adulting things, especially when it came, I remember, to buying my first car from somebody else. I didn't have enough money to pay for it in full, so I had to navigate the loan process. And I have to tell you, it's gotten a lot better with Navy Federal. That's why they've created a fully loaded car buying experience, because you can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all through one convenient place. 
They have low rates and pre-approval. It's good for 90 days so you know what you can afford. While you shop, you'll save thousands off MSRP with Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar. If you've never used the car buying service at Navy Federal with TrueCar, holy moly, you're going to save a lot of money. You can also get exclusive member savings. Remember, when you're a member of Navy Federal, you get all kinds of savings. So let's add up a few. Uh, Carfax, Geico, Sirius XM. The course are always available with 24-7 member service representatives to answer any questions. You'll learn more at NavyFederal.org. That's NavyFederal.org forward slash car buying. ARG, I think is more fun though. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Your actual savings off MSRP may vary. Navy Federal Credit Union is federally insured by NCUA. Well, you know, when I think about Navy Federal, I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equalizing lender. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, back. And with so many complete gems in my possession, I should be able to make everyone down in the basement happy. Just so you're aware, you too could be in the running if you become a super listener of the podcast. There's just a few of the goods that I've got up for grabs. Like, uh, you know, who's going to get the little hula dancer on my El Camino's dashboard? And don't forget about the furry steering wheel cover. I mean, driving with that thing is an absolute dream. It's like your hands are having a little dance through the clouds. And lastly, there's my life's work. The World Texarkana Affair, also better known as WTF. Who's going to take that cash cow over? And if any of you stackers feel like you deserve these precious gems more than the crew here in the basement, and honestly, they're really not impressing me that much right now, then just let me hear why in the basement Facebook group. Now, let's get back to today's trivia answer. The question was, what year was the first hashtag used? Chris Messina, best known as an advocate for open source software, first proposed organizing tweets using the pound sign on August 23rd, 2007. And so the first hashtag on Twitter, which he used as an example of the concept, was hashtag bar camp. Sign me up. I want to go anywhere there's a camp with a bar. Anyway, now let's learn more about estate planning. What's the best way for me to give this stuff away? Take it away, Joe and Amy. And here she comes down to the basement. A woman I'm so happy is a friend of mine. Amy Blacklock is here. How are you? I am great. How are you, Joe? I'm good, but I have to say that I certainly miss the Detroit area 
personal finance community where you and I would see each other there for a couple of years. And that was a painful part about moving away. I'm like, I can't move from Amy. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I loved having you around here. And yeah, this is a lot farther trip to the basement now. So it is. Thanks it was, for that. I was glad on the world tour for the book, you could include us. So that was, <laughs> yes. that was awesome. But let me ask you this, Amy, why you and a book about estate planning? Like, why did this hit you that you wanted to be involved in this project? We were approached by Adams Media to write this book. And we jumped right on board because we think it's such an important topic. Two thirds of Americans do not have an estate plan. I had recently went through an experience with an aunt and an uncle and found how important it is to really have an estate plan, have it updated. While they had wills and uh, powers of attorney, they weren't updated. They also didn't have information easily accessible. So when I jumped in and had to take over, it, it was just a mess. So wanted to make sure that people understand how important it is, no matter how much money you have, no matter what age you are, et cetera, that you really do need to get a, some essential documents in place. You cover this right at the beginning of the book, which I was so glad to see, which is a lot of people, as you and I both know, think, well, an estate, that sounds like something rich people have, Amy. Right. Tell me what really is an estate plan and why do we all need one? Well, your estate plan is much more than just saying who gets what assets when you pass away. Your estate plan includes having a power of attorney in case something were to happen to you and you needed somebody to jump in and just pay your bills. Make sure that your rent's paid, your mortgage is paid, that kind of thing. And that, could be, the, and that could be as simple, not to cut you off, but that could be as simple as you're in the hospital just for a month or two or whatever. You know what I mean? You have some serious injury and can't get to it. Somebody can do it on your behalf. Yes, correct. Yeah. You know, something simple. Yeah. Accident, you know, accidents happen to people every day. Unfortunately, you could be disabled and unable to work for a period of time. You could be in a coma, you know, and in that situation, you are going to need somebody to make some decisions for you regarding your finances or even your health care, perhaps. And so you'll need a health care power of attorney and a financial power of attorney to do those things. And then a will, a basic will, even for people with limited assets, those will help others in your life navigate your estate when you're gone. And your estate could be, it might just be a checking and savings account with a little bit of money in it, or it could be property that you have. It could be, you know, personal possessions. And then the other thing that a will can do is it can name a guardian for any children that you have. And so that's uh, super important so that you have a say-so in who uh, is looking over your children and who is handling your, your finances. Are there important things that we should think about when we're choosing those individuals? Sure. You want to think of people who obviously are trustworthy, <laughs> that, you know, have a good head on their shoulders, but not even that. Uh, you know, it helps to have somebody who understands finances, who can navigate the legal system. But even thinking about things like, does a person live close to you? Um, because if you're in Michigan and your uh, son is in California, it's a long way for him to try to handle something for you, especially when they might have to have court appearances. They might have to come to your home and, and look through, you know, documents, get rid of your stuff, sell your house, those kinds of things. So if you could name somebody that's even, you know, in close proximity, that will also be helpful. You also want to consider people's ages, honestly, um, because depending on when you're creating your estate plan, if you're looking to have, you know, a power of attorney or an executor that's 20 years older than you, you know, as you age, you might need to, to rethink that and, and name somebody else later. 
I've heard of that younger people that never redo their estate planning. They have, you know, mom or dad as their person take care of it. Mom or dad dies before they die. They pass away. They never changed it. Now all of a sudden they don't have anybody in charge anymore. Exactly. And that's kind of what happened with my aunt and uncle. You right up front talk about if you fail to do this, if you don't have a will or a trust, or you don't have the people named in your document, you make the point that you really still kind of have a plan, but it might be ugly. Correct. The state will come in and make decisions for you, such as possibly naming the guardian of your children or who will get your home or who will get your, you know, the, the money that's under your mattress kind of a thing. If you don't name that person who you, your heirs and who you want to, to benefit from your estate, judge will decide that for you. Back when I was doing the old rubber chicken dinner seminars about financial planning, I'd talk about estate planning and I'd say, the state has a plan, exactly what you said, but then I'd say, you can see what they've done with our roads. Imagine what they do with your kids. Like it is, <laughs> and people outside of Michigan have no idea how bad our roads are in the Detroit area. But oh, they're horrible. If we yes. can't, if we can't trust them with that, how can you trust them with the rest of it? So you talk about who to consider in your planning. So let's dive into that even more because you talked about a few of these people, but you say that it starts with you. What does that mean? What that means is that you want to protect yourself. You need to protect your assets, your um, income, your property, just yourself. So, for example, going again, thinking maybe the worst if an accident happens and you are in a state of disability or what they call incapacitated and you're not able to make decisions for yourself, you want to have protections in place so that somebody is taking care of you. If you don't name a person, that's again where the state could step in and name somebody to make those healthcare decisions for you or, you know, your finances. The other thing is, is just protecting your estate from, say, you're not in a coma, you're not incapacitated, but you're disabled and you're not able to work. By having disability insurance, that helps protect your income so that you, while you're recovering, you're able to pay your bills, that kind of a thing. Then it also, you want to protect your family by you having the disability insurance helps to, you know, even take care of your family by you having life insurance that will help to take care of your heirs and your family when you're gone. You talked about a will. A lot of people listening have also heard of a trust. What's the difference between a will and a trust when it comes to building your estate plan? There's actually a, a pretty big difference. There's a variety of trusts that are available to people. There's a living trust, which you would have while you're alive. And you would manage uh, your assets within the trust. There's also trusts that don't start until after you pass away. And in that situation, the trust holds your assets versus them going to specific beneficiaries. The trust is, manages the assets. The benefits to this is a big one for a lot of people is that any assets in your trust are private, meaning they won't go through probate, where a will will become public knowledge. A trust, anything in the trust is private knowledge and people you know, won't be plastered in the newspaper, that kind of a thing. It's also beneficial when you have situations in your family, such as somebody with special needs or you have children from previous marriages and you want to make sure all of your children are protected as well as your current spouse. Having things managed in a trust is a better way than 
to make sure everybody is covered and um, nobody's left out, I guess, if you will, where in a will, you might not have all the protections that you need. A will for somebody with simple estate, not a large family, everything's clean, cut and dry. They don't own a lot of property. A will is probably all they may need. But as you accumulate assets, as you accumulate property, as your family grows, maybe get divorced or remarried or your spouse passes away and you get remarried, things become more complex. And that's when you may want to turn to a trust. I would think special needs children too, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. That's a big thing. Yes. There's there's two different ways to do this that you list in the book. There's software out there, or you can hire an attorney. Do you have an opinion about which one of those is best? When you have a very simple estate, I think you could DIY it. For example, in reading this book, we think that the book will give you enough information to feel comfortable to DIY your own plan if you have a very simple estate. You also can DIY like your healthcare proxy um, or some people call it the advanced healthcare directives. Those kinds of things, sometimes you can DIY. But when you get into the more complex estates, again, blended families, that's when you really should speak with an attorney and you might think you can DIY it, but I always, one of my favorite sayings is you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's where an attorney can really help you out. I couldn't agree more. I feel like back when I was a financial planner, there were people that would try to DIY this. And I thought your family's going to have to hire an attorney later anyway. Like your things are so messed up. Why not like interview people while you're live and have this competent plan? And then your family will have somebody to turn to. But also on the other side, I saw people spend thousands of dollars when they're, you know, their situation's so straightforward that just a computer program would be super easy way to go. I'm thinking about, as I say that though, I'm thinking about the Aretha Franklin situation where she had several different wills. They were all handwritten in that type of a situation. Obviously you don't want to have four different wills. And allegedly she had written wills out, you know, in quick succession, one after another, supposedly. How often do you actually want to redo your will? Number one. You want to redo your will anytime there's a major change in your life situation. For example, getting married, having children, getting a divorce, those kinds of things should trigger a change in your will. Other things that might trigger is all of a sudden you you inherit a large sum of money. You might want to update your will. You get remarried and now you're marrying somebody who has children from a previous marriage. You might need to update your will. There, there's a lot of things that really could trigger it. Maybe an executor that you had named passes away. You need to update your will. So there, there's a lot of situations that could cause you to update your will. However, it doesn't require necessarily the updating of the whole will. There is a, what they call a codicil that will allow you to update your will or add to your will or make a change to your will without having to update the entire document. Uh, the next question there is, thinking through Aretha's situation. So she has these different wills. You know, part of me that doesn't know a lot about this goes, maybe if she had filed one of those somewhere, but is there somewhere that you file your will? Is there something, do you get it notarized? Like if you do a will yourself, like a, reportedly she had done, is there something that I do with it? Yeah, it's going to vary a little bit by state potentially, but you usually need to have two witnesses sign the will and these witnesses 
cannot be a beneficiary of the will. So it has to be a couple of independent witnesses and it lots of times has to be notarized as well. Okay. What if I want to cut somebody out? What if I don't want somebody to get any of my money and I want to make sure that, that I disinherit this person? We found the best way is to actually state in your will that you are disinheriting an individual. So first of all, we want you to think carefully before you actually decide to disinherit someone. Especially if it's me. Don't disinherit me. Right. (laughs) But if you do, it's best to explicitly state that in your will that you are leaving so-and-so, you know, zero or you disinherit somebody. And the reason for that is so that later they can't just say, oh, I was accidentally left out of the will. Uh, Like it was an accident, like they forgot me. So if you state that you are disinheriting them, then there's no question. You might want to, instead of disinheriting them completely, just leave them something very small. Again, kind of so they can say, you know, they're getting something. They don't feel like, you know, you're you're totally leaving them out. They're getting a little something. But again, it's a very delicate situation that you'll really want to think about. I know there's some other financial planning tools uh, from reading the book that you have that can also help with the estate planning. Tell me about like workplace plans, like like the 401k or at your bank. It seems, but on those accounts, you write that there's some some ways that I can pass those on. That's a part of my plan. Right. Not everything has to be listed in the will. For example, your 401ks, your um, IRAs, even bank accounts. Um, you can list a beneficiary on many of those plans. Um, some of them are called a transfer on death beneficiary, and some are called some are called a payable on death beneficiary. But your your bank accounts, checking savings, those kinds of things, you can go right to your bank and ask them for the payable on death or the transfer on death paperwork to set that up. So if something were to happen to you, your account would go right to the individual that you've listed as beneficiary on that your IRAs, your 401ks, those kinds of things, life insurance, you will list beneficiaries on those so that those do pass on to whoever you're named. And it seems like when you're updating, you want to remember to update those too. I mean, I could totally see somebody forgetting to update that and has somebody, the wrong person listed. Yes, that happens a lot in um, divorce from what I understand is people forget to update those and then something happens and give all the money to the ex-husband getting getting the money. Right. Right. The other thing to make note of is some people think, well, if I put it in my will, then it will go to whoever's in my will. Well, that's not the case if it's an account that has a beneficiary, your beneficiary on your account will always trump what's in your will. So if you think I'm leaving my uh, my bank account at Chase to my son, well, if he's not listed, the listed beneficiary on that account, he's not going to get that account. Oh. It's going to be whoever's listed as a beneficiary. Is there a way to make it so that I fill out that paperwork, but it defaults to the will? Like, can I write it out saying, I want it to go to whoever's in my will? You know, instead of going to five different places, Amy, to update everything, can I do it that way? No, not my understanding is if it's whoever is on the beneficiary of that account. So, for example, you might have a Vanguard account and you might have a 401k or life insurance. All of those are going to have their own individual beneficiaries. And unfortunately, you are going to have to update all of those. That's not what I want to hear, Amy. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I I shouldn't say that. You know what? A trust. If you have a trust and you name the trust as the beneficiary of those accounts, then the trust would inherit everything. And then Then that'll take care of all of it. That's set up. So much research went into this, by the way, you go through everything from funding your uh, final care to what if your will gets contested to leaving property to kids to, as you mentioned, the different types of trust and how the trust gets administered and uh, so many different things. I know that with all the work you put into this, there must have been something that surprised you. What surprised you while you're working on the book? Probably what surprised me is really, it's such a complex topic, but it really can be distilled down to easily understandable information that anybody then can get it done. When you hear the words estate planning, it just sounds like, you know, something that uh, is just going to be filled with legal jargon. Uh, It's going to, again, be only for those who are rich or wealthy. Yes, we did a lot of research. We did a lot of reading, but it really comes down to just a few you know, things that you really got to know. Uh, you have to understand your finances and your estate, what money you have, what money you owe, and, you know, how to take care of, you know, people in your life and yourself. And it, it's not, you know, as they say, rocket science. Yeah. It's just, it does take some time to understand all that you have to do and implement it, but it's not hard to understand. But, and I love that too. And it's a little like riding a bike too. Once you know it, it's it's not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Little things change, but nothing big changes over time. I feel like. Right, right. Hopefully, your estate just grows. You have more money. You can then you know make sure Joe's a beneficiary. Yeah, absolutely. Know. If you want to make sure you have your favorite podcaster in there, I'm all for it. That would be great. The book is Estate Planning 101, A Crash Course in Planning for the Unexpected from Avoiding Probate and Assessing Assets to Establishing Directives and Understanding Taxes your essential primer to estate planning. And I'm assuming that it's available everywhere. Yes. Available everywhere. That's so awesome. Congratulations, Amy, on a job well done. And thanks for hanging out with us and geeking out over estate planning. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And one more thing I did want to mention, we do have some free tools. Oh, good. On, on um, our website, womenwhomoney.com slash estate planning tools. Okay. And quite a few different resources that will be available And I'd be remiss, by the way, of course, Women Who Money on its own is an award-winning website and just fun to go hang out at anyway. There's a ton of stuff there, but it's womenwhomoney.com forward slash estate dash planning dash tools. And you know what? If you're walking the dog or you are driving right now, we've got you covered. We'll have a link to all things Amy and to the tools that she and Vicky have at womenwhomoney.com. Thanks a ton, Amy, for hanging out with us and geeking out about estate planning. I I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Really appreciate it. Hey, I'm Mr. Wow. And I'm Mrs. Wow from Waffles on Wednesday. And when we're not eating waffles, we're stacking Benjamins. Huge thanks to Amy for stopping by. Oh, gee, so many reasons, even if you're in your 20s, to do your estate plan. And the basics, like just getting your beneficiaries in order, can be so important. You know, maybe you don't need the full treatment at 25, but just thinking about what happens when you pass away to your 401k plan, your checking account, your savings, all that student loan debt. Somebody's going to have to deal with it. And if you can 
save them some grief by making sure, like you said, at least your beneficiaries are correct. That, uh, that goes a long way. Yeah. I, I love Amy's ability to talk about that in a kind of fun way, not a topic we want to deal with, but I think a great way to, if it's the end of summer, it's probably a good time to think about end of life as we watch the trees starting to die, die for another year, but not completely. They will come back. Yeah. The leaves are dying. They're dying. <laughs> hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Beneficiary forms and guardianship. Bam. That's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. So you have more time to focus on the important things instead of the same inane question on five different pages of your insurance app drives me crazy. And you know why you're filling it out. Most of the time people aren't going to read these questions. So Haven Life cut to the important stuff. You're in and out very quickly. Prices are affordable. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160 years old insurer. No waiting several weeks for a decision and super lovely customer support. How do you get that goodness? StackyBedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get your free quote. And today we're diving into the basement, our Facebook group where our stacker friends hang out and Joanne had a fantastic question, OG, that a lot of people wonder about. Listen to this. What do you think about this option from Bright House Financial, formerly MetLife? She says, see attached PDF, which we can talk about here in a minute. I've recently separated from my employment, and the company gave me several sessions with a CFP to review my plan. He seems more concerned than me that I'm in almost 100% equities and is asking me to consider this for a small portion of the portfolio to protect from market volatility to a point. It's an interesting annuity that, quote, protects from some market decline while allowing the participant to earn market returns, per se. Being as I cannot access this in an IRA based on age for another eight years, the six-year S&P 500 10% loss protection cap rate is 300%. What I'm pondering is the six-year cap rate shield 10. So her questions are, have any of you seen this and what do you think? Be nice, please. Number two, I normally run at the sound of the word annuity. In this case, I see no fees being passed to me. Market-based returns loss capped at 10% of this plan. What are the red flags? And if I did this, it would be for one six-year term enrolled into my existing rollover account at that time to be allocated appropriately. Let's talk about this. This is new to Joanne, maybe new to a lot of people. They meet with an advisor. They recommend something like this. What are your thoughts? Shocking that the annuity sales guy wants you to buy an annuity. <laughs> that's that's the, uh, the first point of note. Wait a minute. Let's uh, talk about that for a second, OG, before we move on, because what was your clue that this is an annuity sales guy? Uh, be- because I thought so too, but we can pick them out because... Because the guy from Bright House is selling the Bright House thing. That's yeah. That's that's the clue. Formerly MetLife. So when you work with an advisor who's affiliated with an insurance company, insurance is going to be a very important part of the plan. Doesn't make it necessarily evil or wrong, like I see sometimes on the internet. But you have to remember that these people are going to have yeah, the Kool Aid that they've been served, and that they all the training and all that sort of stuff is focused around the products that they manufacture. It is what they know, and it's what they know. So it's what you're going to get. Not going to walk into the Italian kitchen and get a quesadilla. 
Not one that tastes good anyway. So the thing that I find kind of interesting is he's like, so uh, let me get this straight. You shouldn't have all your money in stocks, but you should put your money in stocks in this thing instead. Well, well here's but the reason why. Oh, it's got the downside protection. Ooh. Exactly. Where the and, stock market does not. That's the sale. And uh, let me just ask this question as it relates to costs. So I'm assuming the guy was wearing pants and he probably was in an office of some kind or arrived to your home or office, maybe in a vehicle of some kind. And uh, he probably has a mortgage. So my question is, is Brighthouse doing all of this out of the benevolency of their firm? Is he independently wealthy such that he doesn't require a compensation of any kind whatsoever? Of course not. He gets paid. And so does Bright House. So to say that it's there's no cost is malarkey. There has to be. Which is an important point that you make, OG, because annuities by themselves are not evil. Annuities get sold the wrong way a lot of the time. And the one thing that Joanne doesn't have here that is required for her to get, she's required to get a prospectus. And the prospectus on the annuity, it's actually an annuity contract that shows all the expenses that are inside the annuity, this two pager that she shared in the basement doesn't have any of those fees yeah. uh, shown. And companies are clever in how they deal with this. They, you know, they stuff them in the returns or something like that. So if anybody ever says to you, any financial person, if anyone says anything to you, this is free, <laughs> you know, what do they say, you know, about social media, right? If you don't pay for it, you're the product, you're the product Right. Well, let me tell you something. Bright House is not interested in making you the product. You're paying for it. Somehow, some way. And anybody that says to you, no, there are no costs for this, is a liar, straight up deceitful MFR, or is incompetent. And either of those things, off you go. Gone. Off you go. See you. And I want to put a point on this, OG, them charging for the product does not make it bad. Of course Anything not. that is worth value is worth paying for. And the upside of an annuity is freedom from worry. That's what the sales pitch was, right? It's freedom no, from worry. And the- No, an annuity is lifetime income, is guaranteed flat income. I don't know that that provides well, worry, a lifetime of worrylessness, this- I guess. Correct. That's what you and I think an annuity should be. Okay, let's strip away this annuity. Yes, I was talking about this particular sales pitch. He's selling you on freedom from worry. This is a piece of the portfolio. You can stay invested mostly in stocks, but we're going to put a little barrier on it. But that barrier always costs money. So it's not, is it free or not? Because if it's free, it's ridiculous. And oh, gee, the warning bells go off. The question should be, oh, that's neat. What's the cost of that barrier? Because that barrier will have a cost. But also to your point, this isn't the reason why you should buy an annuity. This is kind of a square peg round hole. First of all, it's inside an IRA. Let's talk about what an annuity is. An annuity is a product that you put money into and a cool feature of the annuity, you get some tax deferral. You get tax deferral. You're not going to pay taxes. Well, guess what an IRA is? An IRA is a tax shelter. You get tax deferral. You have a tax-deferred vehicle inside a tax-deferred vehicle. I don't think that's oh, a... Oh, uh, well, the good news is that they've got that in a disclosure page, item number 642, you know, that you shouldn't buy an annuity for its tax deferral, you know, so... 
So, hey, we disclosed that, you know. The problem that you're trying to solve doesn't exist. The problem that this person is trying to solve for you doesn't exist. If you have an entirely stock portfolio right now, congratulations. You should have been able to prove to yourself over the last 18 months that despite whatever apocalypse du jour happens, not only does the stock market come back, but it comes back in a manner and time that is inconceivable (laughs) in the moment of the darkest despair. In March of last year, on the 23rd, which happened to be the bottom of the S&P, there is not a soul on this planet who said, you know what, I bet you the market's double in a year from now. (laughs) You know, there's not anyone who said that. You know why? Because the freaking entire economy of the entire world was completely shut down. It made absolutely no sense. And so I don't want to get into the argument of like whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing that it happened, but it happened. And if nothing else has uh, happened, or if you haven't learned anything else over the last year and a half, it's that markets cannot be controlled nor predicted in any way, shape, or form. And if you had your money in equities, had your money in stocks, and you stayed the course, you have exponentially more money than you had a year ago at this time. That should be all the lesson you need for any other possible apocalypse that happens. Like, oh, well, but I kept it in during COVID and I was rewarded handsomely. That will happen again, probably sometime in the next five years, statistically. And so if you're 50 and you're like, I think I'm going to retire in 10 years, guess what? This is going to happen twice more to you, probably. And the big 40 or 50% thing, that's probably going to happen two or three more times in your lifetime. So you have all the evidence you need to protect against a thing that's not a thing. Temporary declines happen. You don't need protection against a temporary decline. I think you do need protection, but I think that protection you can manufacture yourself. In our headline today, OG, we talked about rebalancing Christine Benz from Morningstar, we quoted, who said that you want to tighten that up right when you retire. I think that's a way to handle some of that volatility. I think the second thing would be, quoting Michael Kitzes, who we also talked about earlier, tighten those bands. So instead of 10%, maybe you make the bands 5%. This is promising a 10% protection rate, right, for a fee. Why not hit that 10% protection rate by having a rebalance plan that does that? And all of that's true, but I'm saying like as it relates to this product, it's it's protecting against a thing that doesn't need protecting against. Because when you take away the downside volatility, you lose the upside opportunity, which is exactly what's happening in the product. You trade away, I can't lose more than 10%. In exchange for, I can't gain more than 10%. Well, what'd the S&P do in the last year? Yeah. If you figure that out... <laughs> You go, well, every so often it might go down 10, but most of the time it goes up 10. Yeah. And so it's, that's not a fair trade. My problem isn't at all that Bright House offers that. That's fine. My problem is the fact that according to Joanne, and we weren't in the meeting, that the advisor said it's free because that quote, freedom from worry from something to your point that we were given away. Uh, we shouldn't need, but also not the not the reason OG to buy an annuity. My, pr- my I, problem I isn't that your... he lied about the freeness or not. It's about that the thing exists in the first place. Yeah, my problem is that he lied. 
Because I know some people that'll still make that trade off all day. Just, I don't want to think about it. Okay, fine. You're going to pay through the nose for that. That's, that's fine. Yeah. But thinking that there isn't another side of that stick that you're getting something for nothing is the problem I have with the annuity industry in general. Could you imagine if you had this, the January 1, 2020, 2020, you're like, March, you're like, what's up losers? I'm only down 10. Huh. Right. And all your By buddies. October, November, you're like. Uh, yeah. R- and right r- now you're like, uh, well, at least I made 10 when everybody else has made like 75. Like one, t- one example, one recent example proves everything. It is frustrating. And also we go back to there are plenty of reasons to buy an annuity. This is not a reason to buy an annuity. Lifetime pension based income. Trading away longevity risk. Good reason to buy it, not this. Love that question, by the way, in our basement Facebook group. If you want to be part of that community, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. We'll have lots of links on how annuities work again in our guide, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker, our free guide to the show. (laughs) I just looked because I was kind of curious. So, yeah, I I was pretty close. Since the bottom of the market, the SP is up 92%. Hey, great. So you got 10. So high five. You got 10. Missed out on 90, but you got 10. In the comments, OG, a couple weeks ago, we talked about CFPs and them tightening their restrictions. Can a CFP be a commission-based advisor? Yeah. (laughs) Send that letter into the, the CFP board. Yeah. There's no restriction about what your compensation package is, so to speak. So we talk about fiduciaries and the the language around that. CFPs is a professional organization. So certified financial planners to continue to be that, you've got to pass a test and then you've got to pay some money and you've got to do some continuing education and you have to also adhere to their guidelines. That's one of the rules. And one of their guidelines is you always have to do what's in the best interest of your client. So we would call that a fiduciary responsibility. A fiduciary from the government's perspective is how your organization is structured. There are certain business models that can be fiduciaries, and there are certain business models that cannot be. An investment advisory firm is a fiduciary. Broker at Merrill Lynch can't be, just because of the business model, by the definition of the government. Anybody that's affiliated with a broker-dealer, you're... Edward Jones guy, the Merrill Lynch person, the Morgan Stanley's, the Ameriprise's, whatever, legally can't be fiduciaries because of the fact that the rule prohibits it. But they have to be from a CFP standpoint if they're a CFP. So the CFP board does not make any distinction as it relates to styles of compensation, commission or otherwise, but they do say you have to do what's in your client's best interest. So if you work for a firm and the only thing you can do is commissions, then they would expect you to behave in a manner that is best for your client within your organization. So Chris in the comments says he's surprised to see if Pete would recommend this. Well, again, it is what it is. Thanks for that question, Joanne. I know Joanne asked our community, not us, but I thought that that was really a great question for the show. I wanted to kind of pause. Uh, if you've got a question for OG and I to dive into on the show, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And that gets you there. Man, lots of people to thank, especially thanks to you. It's a busy, busy time for 
lots of families, lots of people here at the end of summer. So thanks for taking your valuable time. Thanks for people that shared some of this wisdom with their friends. If you know somebody that should be a stacker, thanks to you for sharing the show. And last thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this podcast. I have been traveling and I know that I've got lots more books to send out, OG. (laughs) If you were going to give us a five-star review and you sent it to me, there's a book coming your way. Officially, we're putting your name in a hat. If you were giving us a review and you're okay with sending me that link, I'd love to give you some more additional financial knowledge and at the same time, uh, get some of the stuff out of the basement. Here's a great one from UGA, exclamation point. Somebody loves UGA, I think, OG. Awesome podcast, five stars. Been listening to this podcast for three years now and always look forward to new episodes. Topics are always interesting and the end product is always top notch. Highly recommend. Thank you so much for that UGA. And mom is incredibly proud of us because of you. So if you want to send me that it was you, happy to have you help me clean my basement. <laughs> it doesn't come across as great when I, when I phrase it that way, does it? Last but not least, if you're somebody that needs to make better financial decisions the rest of this year and next year and need a fiduciary team in your corner to do that. With limited annuity recommendations. (laughs) Head to (laughs) stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will lead you to OG's team's calendar. And uh, you'll see how his team can interface with your team to make better decisions in the future. All right. A good decision is us letting Doug finish this off. Doug, what should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline. Rebalancing, it's even more important after you retire. Second, take a lesson from Amy Blacklock. If you don't do an estate plan, don't worry. The government has one for you, but you probably won't like it. So make sure to take action on your plan today. But the big lesson? Always talk to your elders about their estate plans. I asked Joe's mom what I'm getting when she croaks, and she's giving me her nunya business. She's a business owner? I've never even, don't even know what that business is. I mean, she's never even talked about nunya business. I had no idea, but I mean, it's pretty cool because I'm getting 100% of it. So suck on that, Joe. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn everything you need to know about getting started with your estate plan, check out Amy Blacklock's new book, Estate Planning 101. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe and it's all free. It's called The Stacker. And you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. 
She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, reminding you that the Chipotle truck doesn't carry burritos. Lesson learned. So your seasons. Have you have you heard comes, this bit before? I have never heard this. I have it queued up. This is uh, one of your my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, talking about seasons. It's beautiful here. I hope you had a nice summer because there's there's pressure to enjoy summer, right? I'm from the Midwest. It's almost a panic. <laughs> Go out there, have fun. Winter's coming to kill us. Because there's an expectation of fun during summer. In winter, we discuss summer with such reverence. In January, you'd think we were talking about a family pet that passed away. Remember summer? I miss summer. I have photos of summer. That's when we're a happy family. Summer's presented as a vacation. It's like a three-month vacation for nobody but children. (laughs) And who doesn't deserve a few months off after the rigors of kindergarten? (laughs) I have five young children. During summer, they lounge around like they've just returned from fighting ISIS. (laughs) Third grade was a beast. (laughs) Summer vacation does kind of set up an adulthood of disappointment. That first job, you're like, I have to go to work in July? I totally, st- I totally still remember that. I remember being done with college and going, Are you kidding? I got to work all summer long? <laughs> exactly. that, is, that is absolutely horrible. Well, the good thing is being in Texas, working all summer long is a treat because Lord knows I don't want to be out in that. That's where you and I differ. The other day I was outside, Alyssa came out, she goes, it's like 105 out here. I'm like, yeah. Sitting under the patio, working on my laptop, sweating buckets. I had like 40 bottles of water next to me. Last year when we were homeless and I was in Palm Springs, we'd go to the pool at 104. And I got to say, that was fun. That w- It was really fun. And for some reason, the pool was freezing cold. How they can keep the water freezing cold when the air is boiling is beyond me. <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you engineer this magic? But it was fantastic. And of course, they had those spindly palm trees all around the pool. And uh, Cheryl and I would just go out there every afternoon around 3, 3.30 in the heat, in the teeth of it, and go to the pool. Hurry up and get skin cancer. <laughs> I, I clearly remember fourth grade. 
sitting in the old elementary in Vicksburg, Michigan, and Mrs. Ely's talking, and I'm not paying any attention, OG, because I'm looking out the window, and I remember realizing the trees have leaves on them, and that means it's here, baby, summer in Michigan. Yeah, that always happened around Lissa's birthday, so uh, now it happens like two and a half months before her birthday. And that's what we think in March. So <laughs> she thinks she thinks my birthday's coming. It's almost summer. Confuses you. Well, let's get back outside and celebrate a little summer here. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.